What's going on, Law Nation? Welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, the best place for learning about the world of alternative passive investing so that you can practice when you want to and not because you have to. So if you're ready to kick that billable hour to the curb, start by going to attorneybydesign.com to download the Freedom Blueprint, which will also get you access to partner with us on one of our next passive real estate investments. And we have a live deal right now. It's a 506C opportunity for accredited investors only with a target preferred return of 15%. Yes, 15%. You heard that right. So jump on that if you have a chance. Today, let's talk about when and what to invest in. There's been a lot of chatter about waiting for the right time to jump in over the last, I don't know, I'd say five years or so. Because everyone has their own prediction on when the next 2008 might happen. But, well, other than the blip caused by the recent global pandemic, we haven't seen that natural correction yet. And who really knows when that will be? Nobody does. But what we have seen are very strong influences that could impact the real estate market in the very near future. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about rising interest rates. I'm talking about a highly inflationary environment that we're all feeling, combined with you know an undersupply that's creating a high demand and skyrocketing prices. So with all these different factors culminating right now, what does it all mean? What can we predict after factoring in all these things? Well, you're about to find out. In this episode, one of my favorite investing personalities, Hunter Thompson, shares his expert insights into this economic melting pot that's happening right now and how you can capitalize on it before you get left behind. Hunter is the founder of ASIM Capital, and who has acquired over $150 million of mobile home parks, self-storage, retail, office, ATM machines, and cryptocurrency assets. Hunter is also the host of the Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast, which has received over 1 million downloads. He has also wrote Raising Capital for Real Estate, which hit number one on Amazon in real estate sales and selling. Really stoked for this, guys. Let's go. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra-wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Hunter Thompson, what's going on, brother? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Honored to be on. Absolutely, man. You're someone I, I personally look up to a lot and hold in high regard in this industry. So super stoked to have you on the show today, man. Thanks again. Very mutual. Absolutely, man. So Look, you've been on a ton of podcasts and you know, you're the host of your own successful show, Cashflow Connection. So I got to ask, who's the real Hunter Thompson? <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> you know, someone asked me, like, if I had to say one word that I identify as, it's entrepreneur, man. And I think everyone listens to that. That's probably, that speaks to them because anybody listening to the show, they take an entrepreneurial approach to reality and to their lives. Like we were not born passive real estate investors, right? In fact, we had to find this stuff out on our own to a large degree. And 
a lot of us were kind of taught a lot of myths about investing, stay, you know, save, only invest in the stock market. For some reason, dividends can pay off your expenses at some point. It's like you have to have a $40 million net worth to do that, you know? And so that feeling of like, man, I may have been lied to about some of the most important things in life kind of inspired me to go down a cool path and, um, you know, <laughs> break some rules along the way, but here we are. <laughs> Nice. I love it, man. So dive in a little bit deeper. Tell us a little bit about your background and your story, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Sure. So I think for a lot of people, when they talk about real estate and like their history in the space, 2008 is going to come up. And that's the same for me. But I was very insulated from that risk. So I was in college during 2008, but I saw what took place. And I had a background as an entrepreneur and a poker player. And so I wasn't really like investing in the stock market. But when 2008 happened, I saw blood was in the streets. And I heard the quotes from the billionaires that said, that's when you should be buying. And so I basically went all in on education. I you know, was obsessed with CNBC. Jim Cramer was like the biggest fan of his, just reading everything from Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, all those guys, and started to follow financial markets, even dabbled in day trading a bit. And then something happened, you know, started to have success as anybody that did that started in 2008, by the way. Uh, but it wasn't really in 2000 until 2010 that something happened that like completely shifted my perspective on everything I had learned up until that point. And people don't talk a lot about 2010, but for me, that was the big moment because after all of this research about quote diversification and hey, you got to get Apple and Johnson and Johnson and also some cash and maybe some gold and these types of things out of nowhere, the European debt crisis happened. And it created massive challenges with volatility in the US markets. And all of a sudden, everyone was focusing on some obscure economic data point, which was the Greece bond yields and the German bond yields. And it was like, hey, man, all this research I had done never suggested that something as ridiculous and obscure. I'm talking every single person on CNBC was watching the German bond yields. And the quote at the time was, if it goes above 7%, the S&P 500 is going to dive. And they were correct. And every day it would go above 7%, below 7%, and the S&P would go up and down and five, like over and over again. <laughs> and I was like, I've got to find a way that a small firm or myself can conduct due diligence on an asset class that is the performance is directly tied to supply and demand, not the German bond yields. And so I was actually not really interested in real estate specifically. I just ended up doing a lot of research on everything that was out there and found real estate was extremely predictable in terms of wealth creation and had the opportunity to create some asymmetric returns. So that's what led us to this conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. So I know, I know your story pretty well. So fill the audience in a little bit, but I know that Jeremy Roll, who's been a guest on our show before is a mentor of yours. And one of the first people kind of got you into the space or got you interested in the space and he's well known for taking, you know, the, a fully passive approach, right? He's one of these guys that's just fully, fully passive. That's kind of his thing. How have you kind of adapted that approach and, and made it your own? So, yeah, you're right. So going back to like 2010, I moved to California, which is one of the most decimated states in the country in terms of the recession, right? And so that's where I, I started my real estate career. And so I would go into the networking events, sometimes four or five a week. And it was honestly like, going to, I mean, it was somber to say the least. People had lost their shirts. People that created $10 million of wealth, if they were all invested in California, some of them are wiped out. And I found that there was a couple of strategies that really struggled. And there's a couple of strategies that didn't struggle. 
And you know, some people don't talk about this. The default rate for multifamily apartments, 150 units or more, like Fannie Fannie financed, 1.5% during 2008. I mean, it's just that's the reality of quality assets with a lot of checks. If you got a lot of checks and they keep coming in because rental income is not really volatile, you just didn't have that big of a problem. So I was very sympathetic to finding out how to do this. And the first person that really introduced me to this was, like you said, Jeremy Roll. And the thesis was this. I'm very want, I want to be focused on diversification. I don't want to be hyper allocated to one particular niche. But if you study economics, you know that in order to have a market advantage, you must be focused on doing one thing better than everyone else. But that is not conducive to building a portfolio that is diversified. Like you probably have interviewed a lot of like, let's say self-storage operator that's like all in on self-storage and Florida's the market and everybody knows the demographics are super favorable. They got their whole $30 million net worth all on the East coast of Florida. And it's insane. All the baby boomers are moving there. It's amazing. And then once a year when it's hurricane season, they can't sleep for months because they got $30 million on the East coast of Florida. And it's like, man, the East coast of Florida is awesome but maybe I should have a little bit in Georgia. <laughs> maybe I should have a little bit in senior living in Wyoming. You know what I mean? So that's the only way to accomplish that from my perspective is to have a diversified passive approach. And I do know Jeremy very well. Uh, you know, he doesn't just go to Mexico and drink Mai Tais. You know, I mean, he works 50, 60 hours a week trying to allocate his portfolio appropriately. And uh, I do a similar kind of thing with my portfolio and also have an active side of the business as well, which is where I, I raise capital for other people's deals. Yeah. And that's, that's the beautiful part about passive investing is you can diversify across different asset classes, different geographies with different sponsors, all that sort of thing so that you can diversify in within the, the realm of real estate or business or whatever it might be. Um, rather than if you are an active sponsor, you're operating those properties that market advantage is knowing the market, knowing the market, being boots on the ground and, and knowing all those intricacies um, rather than, uh, but you know, if you're that person, it's very difficult to diversify. Um, perhaps That's you can passive right. invest in somebody else's uh, deals, but again, you're, you're jumping into the passive investing space. That's um, exactly right. Yeah. So you're very well known as, you know, a great capital raiser. Do you consider that a passive approach or is that an active approach? Well, it's a hybrid, yeah. right? Because what I do is I still find and aggregate active owner operators in their respective niches. It's just that because I have a little bit of expertise in this and a due diligence process and some economies of scale, because you know we've invested very significantly over the years and because we have hundreds of investors and, and thousands of people on our list or tens of thousands on our list, we can do the level of due diligence that most passive investors can't even if they knew exactly what to do, it's not economically viable. So I'll give you an example. There's a lot of passive investors that listen to the show. And I'm sure that if you had the time and infinite resources, you would want to go visit these properties in person on every single deal, spend probably a hundred hours on due diligence on each deal. Um, you know, not only talk to the sponsors themselves, but their CPAs, their contractors, their property managers, you want to review their software. You want to run criminal checks, background checks. If you had infinite time and resources, you'd probably do all that stuff. But if you do all that and you're investing 50 grand, your return profile is going to be deteriorated by that due diligence process. And so I feel like there's need in the space for that extra layer of due diligence, but it's not economically viable unless you're pulling capital together or aggregating investors. And so that's why I founded ASIM Capital to do that exact thing 
we provide that service and usually investors aren't really paying anything out of pocket. We get our economics from the sponsor because we can show up with, hey, $5 million in 30 days, $10 million in 60 days, these types of things. And um, that's a great skill to have in the business of uh, real estate. Yeah. And you just laid that out perfectly. You know, why some people ask, why don't you just go straight to the operator to invest in rather than someone who might be uh, mainly a capital raiser or an aggregator of capital? Um, and, and you just laid that out perfectly. It's, you know, that's an extra layer of due diligence, um, time, effort, money that you as the passive investor don't have to do. Um, and if you do do it, it just it stops making sense. I mean, there's only so much you can do. Even if you take something simple, well, it's certainly not simple, but something like, you know, looking at a sponsor's underwriting model, there are so many things uh, to look into that and, and you won't be able to pick that apart. I mean, you just won't uh, from the passive investors perspective. Even if I go grab somebody's sponsors, some sponsors underwriting model and look at it, I don't know what equations they've changed. I'm not gonna check a thousand different equations, um, but what we do bring value-wise is that we know these sponsors. It's a really small industry when you get to know everyone in it. And totally. we know their reputations. We know how their deals have gone. Um, we know how we they treat their passive investors. So that's just an extra level of due diligence that the passive investors you know, at the retail level might not be able to do. At least that's not exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, something else I think, obviously I mentioned economics a couple of times in the show. Like this is the lens through which I view the space. And if you are an owner operator, you want to kind of play lip service to economics, but the reality is you've got your head down because you can't adjust your business accordingly. Like if you're a retail owner operator and then retail centers get closed in 2020 and you cannot go to retail, you can't just go, all right, we're doing hotels now. You can't, I mean, you've built up a business around that, but as a passive investor, you can be nimble and aggregate capital and allocate capital based on your view through the lens of economics or otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're not going to, if, if you're a retail operator, you're not going to say, and, and it tanks, you're not going to be like, okay, well, retail sucks now. Guys. Yeah. Don't, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't invest with me. Right. <laughs> Forget right. about exactly. it. Exactly. Don't invest somewhere yes. else. You've got to exactly. come up with reasons why to invest, and it might not be the best for those investors. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So a lot of our listeners are attorneys, they're doctors, they're, you know, they're W-2s. Is, is raising capital something they should be interested in getting into? Should they take that next step? Well, it depends. So, I mean, we do a webinar about raising money. And the first thing we say is like, hey, look, this is like the third slide in the presentation. And I say like, are you actually ready for this responsibility? If not, you should leave now. Because, you know, what we talk about is turning on the faucet, turning on that thing. It's like the X factor of every business. And I don't want you to 10X, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, so it's, we take the responsibility very, very seriously. And, um, if you're, if you haven't done a deal, for example, you shouldn't raise money for a deal. What you should do is go all in on education. And I know you've done just a tremendous job kind of educating your base, but you can go all in. I'll put this, this is like a really powerful way to put this. So in 2010, when I started going to real estate meetings, everyone was saying like, Honor, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I've been in this business for 30 years. I've never seen anything like it. This is the back the truck up moment. And I was like, uh, back what truck up? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know what a cap rate is. You know what I mean? But here's the crazy thing. They were absolutely correct. The market dynamics was so favorable that it was probably more favorable than any time in history, especially when it comes to commercial real estate. But four years later, I had developed more confidence, more knowledge, more network that the deals I saw then were better than the deals I saw in 2010. 
And that is why this game is amazing. Because if you can, you can expand your network and knowledge and confidence faster than even the most pronounced recovery in the history of real estate. And so all those people that if you ever hear someone saying like, now's the opportunity of a lifetime, go all in, like maybe they're right, but it might not be the right time for you. So just take your time, stay away from people that are pushy. The reason this game works is that it works all the time. So you never miss the opportunity of a lifetime. That's the whole point. <laughs> Love it, man. Yeah. So it, it, you know, they already have the network, right? If you're an attorney or doctor, you probably know other attorneys and doctors. So at least you have that network established oh, yeah. of high net worth individuals that you might be able to aggregate some capital with. But you're right. I mean, the education piece is imperative and everybody goes through that learning curve and it takes some time. Um, and there's a lot of responsibilities to come with raising capital and investing in real estate in general. So you've got to make sure that you get that education piece nailed down. Totally. Actually, you know what? Do you mind if I, so like something that's been just like on my mind recently is, and so many past investors need to understand is that there's been a, just a lot of discussion around the yield curve inversion and all of that. Do you mind if I talk about that? I'm sure that a lot of listeners are going to be interested. Absolutely. Let's jump into it. Okay. So recently, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around economic indicators and recessions and such, and what that may mean for us as investors. And part of this is because of the inverted yield curve. And I'll break what that down means just really quickly. So typically speaking, bond yields slope up and to the right. If you think of the X axis as time and the Y axis as the yield, you would think that the yields would slope up and to the right because the longer the time, the more time risk you're incurring the higher the return you would want on your bond. So that's typical, but every now and then there's this economic phenomenon that takes place where short-term bonds can produce higher yields than long-term bonds because people are concerned about short-term risk. And so bond, the long-term bonds, people flood into the long-term bonds, which reduces the yields and also increases the yields of the short-term bonds. And so this unique phenomenon takes place. And historically speaking, this has been a very good predictor of recessions, typically 18 to 22 months after the inversion of the two-year and the 10-year bonds. Does that make sense before I go forward? Yeah. Okay. So I think that this is a good indicator of recessions, generally speaking, but I am very bullish about the current environment and I can give you some data as to why, but most importantly, 2008 is a really significant aberration. Recessions do not typically trigger significant pullbacks in real estate. I mean, a 10% pullback in real estate, especially commercial real estate or multifamily apartments in particular, that is pretty ahistoric. I mean, it takes, you got to look back decades to find these types of examples. And I just want investors to understand that. But we saw something in 2008 that this was confirmed in 2020. That is just a holy crap type of moment, even in the face of that potentially challenging information, which is in 2008, for the first time to the scale, the federal government, you know, printed trillions of dollars and this was basically the Pandora's box, which was open in terms of quantitative easing. And I believe it set the precedent that anytime something catastrophic or borderline catastrophic or could be catastrophic could happen, they're going to smash that button. And I've been talking about this for a decade and then 2020 happens and boy, were we right. And they smashed the trillion dollar button harder than they've ever smashed it before. The United States government printed about uh, $6 trillion. 
federal governments all around the world, the central banks print another $4 trillion. So there's $10 trillion extra dollars in the system slushing around the financial sector, searching for yield. And I believe that what's going to happen is that yield, that search is going to go into the bond markets first because it's the only place you can place trillions of dollars quickly. And then it's going to work its way to United States real estate, which I think still is the most favorable risk-adjusted investment in the world. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. So imagine this trillion-dollar tsunami set to crash on a very limited amount of supply in the United States in the wake of and during an affordable housing crisis in an environment where every bond in the industrialized world is negative. United States positive interest rates and positive cap rates are here to provide that yield. And this is a crazy, crazy moment. I want to talk about interest rates in a second, but like that, that tsunami, that visualization of that tsunami, I think is creating a situation where it's like, are you going to surf that tsunami? Or are you going to sit back and watch that crash and watch equity prices rise without participating? Yeah. Yeah. So how do the other things kind of layer onto that? I mean, we're not just hearing about the, you know, the inverted yield curve, but also, you know, the, the interest rates that the yes. feds are, are hiking up and, and inflation is through the roof that everybody's feeling the effects of that. I mean, how do all these different factors, you know, what do they result in? What, what is the result or, you know, what is your prediction of the result? Okay. So first of all, I'm glad you asked this because I'm, I'm working on a summit right now where we're having 22 experts in different niches talk about their perspective on this exact topic. And so I'm in the middle of these sessions and like, they have been crazy. So if you want to get access to that, it's a free summit, by the way, you can go to 100k2invest.com. And it's for people that have hundred thousand dollars to invest. And, you know, you want to look at different niches through this economic lens. So someone I just interviewed on my show, Dr. Peter Lindemann talks about this and um, very well-known economist. Basically, these rising interest rates, dude, this is serious. I mean, this is this is not some like economic indicator. This is actually happening right now. I know a forty million dollar deal that just got blown up because you know the bank basically underwriting changes. If the interest rate increases by a hundred basis points, that's significant. But we got to put this in context. So. When interest rates rise, typically it's because of concerns around inflation. And that's the case for now as well. And inflation is typically thought of, or I think I should say real estate is typically thought of as a hedge against inflation. I mean, you've probably said that a million times. I have too. But I think out of this conversation, you, you maybe will both start phrasing it slightly differently. It is true that it is a hedge against inflation, but I think that doesn't even come close to stating how favorable inflation is for real estate owners. Because when we think about real estate being a hedge against inflation, I think it's like this. We think about the equity prices, the prices of real estate rise proportionately as inflation takes place, which is true. But there's something else that's taking place, which is there's a distinction between equity prices and consumer prices. So when consumer prices rise, you have inflation working its way through the monetary system and the consumers feel it from top to bottom, right? But in real estate, we trade the assets on a multiple of net income. So I know you've bought some multifamily apartments, so have I. Most deals look something like this. We're buying from an owner that doesn't know what they're doing for some degree or another. We're going to buy the property, raise rents, cut expenses. We'll probably raise rents by 15% year one, maybe 8% year two. And then from that year going forward, we're probably going to track along with inflation. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. If you're being conservative. Yeah, absolutely. So I would expect rents after the business plan is implemented to simply track along with inflation to be conservative. And then expenses will also track along with inflation. Now, most people, when they hear that, they think, oh, it's a wash. You know, the top line is increasing by 5%. The expenses are increasing by 5% and no one's really going to benefit. But that would only be the case if it was a one-to-one ratio of gross to expenses or net to expenses. And it's not. Like most of the assets you and I look at, we're talking about 45% operating expense ratio. In self-storage, for example, you can see 35 or even 30% operating expense ratio. So it's disproportionately impacting the top line compared to the bottom line because the bottom, the, the expenses are so much smaller. So the net is actually increasing significantly every year. You have five, six, seven, eight percent inflation. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of people that say it's really 15. That's even better for owners because the net is going to increase, increase, and increase. There's one other piece of this inflation discussion that I want to talk about, but it's a little bit confusing. Are you, uh, did I explain that in a way that's clear? Like, no, that was perfect. Very clear. Okay. Complicated subject. Very clear. Okay, good. So it's not just a hedge, right? The hedge is like, sure, the asset values, excluding this discussion around NOI. That's the first part. The second part is the NOI situation is very favorable for investors. The third piece though, is like this, almost no one's talking about this. And I think it's probably the most powerful and conceptually it is the most powerful, which is if I go to buy a $15 million piece of property, I put $5 million down. I borrow $10 million. The bank is now on the losing end of basically compounding interest because of inflation. If I borrow $10 million in today's purchase power, by 10 years, if inflation continues at 8% per year, by 10 years, the purchase power of that $10 million has been cut in half by inflation, meaning the purchase power of the dollars I will pay them in 10 years is half as valuable to me. And it's the same dollar amount that I need to pay them, but the purchase power has now been cut in half. So what this means is that while there is so much chatter about interest rates rising, the reality is they're net negative in real terms. The bank is paying you to borrow their money, to buy an asset which value will increase and also NOI will increase and also likely the multiple on which that NOI is traded will increase. This is why this is a back the truck moment for these real estate owners and, you know, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah. So based on that, do you think when you're looking at different asset classes, the more disproportionate the income is to the expenses, maybe the more favorable that investment looks like nowadays? Really good question. Um, I do think there's some merit to that, but I got to say a caveat. So we have some self-store, excuse me, some uh, assisted living properties, and those actually are like 70% operating expense ratios. Right. So you can hear this and say, oh, those maybe we're going to get hammered. Senior living is dealing with some challenges because of COVID, but the top line is not increasing at inflation. The top line is increasing at like 10, 15% nationally. So I don't know exactly what's going on, but there's obviously there's more to this conversation than just the inflation discussion, but it isn't the case that we're losing money because of this. It's a challenge because of like move-ins, certain states are still locked down. There's challenges, you know, all that whole thing, but the demographics and everything I think make up for that. But to your point, I think your argument can be made all things being equal, meaning 
I think that let's say class A apartments start to make a lot of sense. Right. Self storage start to make a lot of sense. You know, you can make the argument that new development could even make sense, though that's not something I do and have ever done. But you can start to make that argument for sure. Yeah. So maybe give us a preview. I don't want to give away the whole thing. I know you've got the 100K to invest summit coming up, but what are some of those investments that, that start making sense in this environment? We've kind of touched on it a little bit, but maybe make it a little bit more clear. Oh my gosh. I'm so, okay. So I'm such a nerd. So I'm like literally nerding out, but let me give you a couple examples. So we have like a big, broad view of things that we're going to talk about because there's a lot of things that I invest in. There's a lot of things that I don't invest in, but generally speaking, when it comes to wealth creation, the summit's broken down into three days, protect, grow, and multiply. And like in that order. So protect is like downside protection focused real estate, you know, stabilize multifamily apartments, self-storage assets, things like that. Then in grow, we're going to talk about, you know, uh, development, maybe um, something with like real estate and blockchain, you know, the tokenization of real estate, for example. Then in multiply, we're going to talk about Bitcoin mining. We're going to talk about Dow funds. We're going to talk about buying existing businesses. Uh, one of our clients um, owns the company acquisitions.com. And he's going to come and talk about like buying businesses that are cash flowing. I tried to put him on the spot and be like, what sector is your favorite sector right now? He's like, he's like French Canadian. He's like, I don't really care about the sector. He's like, my friend that just bought the company is a billionaire. He did yogurt. So I don't want to say that yogurt is the best sector. <laughs> he's like, he's going big on yogurt, dude. Like, it, so anyway, it's going to be a cool summit. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be like really diverse, right? It's not just, okay, a multifamily summit. You're kind of going to give this broad swath of lots of different ways to invest in, in, in different uh, risk profiles as well. Totally. That's what's cool. Okay. So this is what you and I like kind of have in common. Like we can actually be open and honest about our views because of the position that we play. And this is why I don't think I've ever seen a summit quite like it because uh, it would be good for business if all you did was multifamily and you go, hey, go invest in Bitcoin mining. So, <laughs> right. um, but, you know, we're just trying to do the right thing for the past investors. So, like I said, 100 k to investcom Yeah, I love the concept, man, because a lot of people are, are thinking that they're like, okay, well, I've got I've got 100 k to invest. Like, what is the best place to put it? And especially yeah. with all these different crazy factors that are going right now, going on right now, that's that's awesome. Very, totally. very timely. All right, man, before we jump into the Freedom Four, let's jump on to one last golden nugget for our listeners you got one yeah just go spitball because i've got a bajillion spitball man I okay like okay okay on the spot First of all, i one. didn't know you did the freedom four that's so crazy i do a freedom friday thing we're on the same page in so many ways dude that's awesome so um here's a golden nugget for sure uh you know speed beats pretty much everything so what this means is that um, the difference between like college sports and professional sports, basically that everyone's faster. In fact, you can be smaller, but if you're way faster, you can still move up through the ranks from high school to college to professional. And the same is true of business. Now, some people might hear that and go, oh, like you're rushing through due diligence. No, it means rush to conduct due diligence, rush to start. But it doesn't mean go quickly and rush through it and do it sloppily. It means get to it. And one of the best ways that I've found to get to it is to find mentors, is to find guides and not try to figure it out on your own. Um, you know, of cool things that I've done, you mentioned some cool things I've done in this industry. It's awesome. But dude, I didn't make any of this stuff up. I, that's not my lane. I want to find someone that has done exactly what I want to do. And I want to model it as closely as possible. And by the way, when you do this, you'll find a place where you feel like your gut wants to go right and they went left and 
sometimes you can feel like, okay, now I got to go on my own. I'll give you a perfect example. You mentioned Jeremy Roll. He's a passive investor, right? And there was a moment where I was thinking, my skills are not completely used. Like I've got this excitement about like building websites and marketing and email content, which Jeremy doesn't do, you know? And I'm like, I need to find someone that's done that. I, I looked left, found someone that went that direction and then model, 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 model. And I'm sure there's going to be a moment where I have to do the same thing and model, model, model. So I'm never going like, hmm, how can I use my raw intelligence to figure this out? By the way, if I had done that, you know, I still would have been like struggling to get C's in college. You know what I mean? So like, it's all because of just finding good mentors. Yeah, that's absolutely. It's a way to accelerate your growth. A lot of people, they'll look and say, look, I don't want to buy this course or this uh, mentor or this coach um, because it's expensive and it might be expensive, but think about like what people pay for their undergraduate degree or their law degree. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it's, yeah, a, fraction, it's a fraction of that. That's exactly right. I probably shouldn't have made a joke about making season college given your audience, but, <laughs> but you know, here's what I can say about your audience in particular. Everybody kind of values things differently. And it's like, your audience has a high demand for time because it's what they lack. When I started my career, I had all the time in the world. Nobody cared about anything. I couldn't get my calendar to get filled up. But all of a sudden, after years of working, the skills that I have developed, now all of a sudden it's very difficult for me to get 15 minutes. So when I think about how can I expedite whatever this is, my, my need for money is low. My need for time is high. So it's like, if I can pay to expedite whatever it is, trust me, I'll pay. You tell me it's $5,000 to get 30. Okay, done. I'll get the result in 30 minutes. Boom. Here's the five grand. And so, um, but that's a, that's a balance, right? So there's a lot of people listening to this right now that are kind of going down this path and perhaps they have a lot of time. So then what the opportunity is, is that's your leverage point find someone that has a high demand for time, low demand for money, and you can exchange. Yeah, definitely. Uh, most of our listeners definitely don't have time. I mean, you, I'll be like, hey, make sure you get a workout in or meditate in the morning. Like, I don't have 15 minutes. I don't have an hour. Oh, so, it's so tough, man. Billing, billing 3,000 hours a, a year, it's ridiculous, man. I've, I've been in that world and it's it's tough to carve out some time. So that's why passive investing is, is really the way to go. I mean, I did the fix and flips and, and did all that kind of stuff to start out with. And it's just, it's not a good business model for um, you know, an attorney at a big law firm or a doctor that's running their own practice. It's just really difficult to, to balance those things. Totally. All right, man, let's jump into the freedom four. Let's go. It's time for the freedom four. What's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? Oh, you already know. Um, you know, I'm constantly working on, uh, like kind of like athletic inspired things. I have a gym. It's probably the most baller thing ever. I'm not like the typical flashy person, but I do have a home gym is pretty dope. Uh, and so right now what I'm working on is a 1000 pound total for the three powerlifting lifts, the squat bench and deadlift. I'm not there yet, but I'll check in maybe in three months and I'll probably be even there. <laughs> Woo, sounds good, man. With all your success, what is one limiting belief that you've crushed along the way and how did you get past it? Oh, dude. Okay. I'm not going to do like a 30 minute thing on this one, but you know, <laughs> I think a lot of people get the impression that the higher you go up in the success ladder, the more it's about tactics and strategies and nothing can be further from the truth. I've paid $50,000 to be in a room with some very successful people. And the reason that room is so exciting is because you start to realize that there is no ceiling. It's a mental thing. 
It is not the tactics and the strategies that I wanted to learn. I wanted to know what they move like, how they think. And that's a lot of money to pay. But the higher you go up in that ladder, the smaller the little tweaks, the, oh, that realization that, oh, I should do that. I can do that. That stuff. It's crazy, right? Because when you start, you're like, there's a certain point, like, at different layers, again, there's a certain point where you go, I'm sick of hearing about this mindset stuff. I get it. I just want results. But then you realize later, oh, that's all that's holding me back. <laughs> so like, so that's my thought. Yeah, I, it's a lot of money. But at the same time, that's something that sticks with you forever. Once you get over that, uh, not, that mindset hurdle, it's with you forever. Totally. What's one actual step our listeners can do right now to start creating more freedom? so funny that you have these dude this is so cool um <laughs> i'm like love, respect this so much because it's what it's all about um one strategy they can implement i would say leveraging technology uh to, to save time um first eliminating a lot of tasks that you don't need to be doing but leveraging technology as opposed to people especially you and then as you first eliminate then automate and then delegate so if everyone on here and this is going to hurt a lot of people but every single person listening to this right now should have a va or an assistant of some kind like if you're making six figures it's absolutely inexcusable to not have someone doing some of the tasks that you shouldn't be doing if you google the term unique ability by strategic coach and dan sullivan it'll give you some insight in terms of my views on a lot of that stuff perfect yeah sometimes it's hard to let go but you got to do it that's right Last but not least, how has passive income made your life better? Oh, dude, that oh, pro. Come on. I mean, that these are great questions. Okay. Uh, I mean, it is my whole life. It, it has made my whole life. But just real quick, a story about this. So a lot of people listening to this show, when you get started in this path, the main goal is to have your passive income exceed your expenses. And that was my goal when I got into this business as well until I was at a conference and someone at the back of the stage, back of the room said that they had a cool announcement because they had accomplished their number one financial goal. And they come up there. And of course, I assume he's going to say that. And he goes, um, so I achieved my number one financial goal was that my passive income is now 10 times my expenses. I was like, <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> mind blown situation. Like I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know that's legal. Like, what are you talking about? I never heard anyone say a multiple of that. Like, you know, he's probably super frugal guy, by the way, $10,000 a month in expenses, $100,000 a month in passive income tax deferred dude. So that's possible in this game. If you keep going. Yeah. Love it, man. All right, Hunter, this has been awesome, man. We're going to listeners find out more about you. Yeah. One thing, 100k to invest Dot com. That's it. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Thanks so much. That's it. Go check it out. Thanks again, Hunter. Hunter Thompson, ladies and gentlemen, you can see why I like him so much because, well, he shares a lot of the same ideas that I have. We have the same political views. We have a lot in common. And well, he's just a lot like me. And who doesn't like someone that's like them, right? So anyways, major key. They say the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. And the same thing goes for investing. There's no better time for you to take action than right now. There are always opportunities in every part of the cycle. You just have to get educated and make the right moves. All right. If you're ready for a change and ready to take action, partner with us on our next passive real estate deal, which is live right now. Go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and join our Esquire Passive Investor Club. All right, kiddos, enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. 
Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.